Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Ross. Lots of stuff going on in technology as always. A vast antivirus software was caught sharing user data without letting the users know about it. It's the big scandal of the week. Britain has actually approved Huawei 5G hardware to be deployed in their upcoming 5G network over the strongest objections of the United States. We'll talk about how that happened and Mm -hmm. what it actually means. And then we are going to cover a few other things we didn't get to last week, like how to lock your registry or how to lock your domain name registry so that somebody doesn't steal your domain name. And uh, and we're going to get to that hack of the week where kids can use iPods to listen to each other in class. Huh. This <laughs> We wanted to get to that last week and we just ran out of time. We did, yeah. That's right. This week we're going to feature Ralph Brooker. He is a, a computer scientist who developed the world's first high-level programming language. He worked with Alan Turing there in Manchester, and uh, he's one of the pioneers in early computer science. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. Where'd he go? There we go. There's a letter in your mailbox. There he is again, mm-hmm. sleeping at the switch. There you go. There we go. We got an email from John in Annapolis. Dear Doc and Jim, my Windows computer is very slow. It's not too old, but it just slowed down over time. How can I speed it up again? I really don't want to have to buy a new computer, John in Annapolis. Well, John, there are a few things you can do on the software side, then things you can do on the hardware side to speed up a machine. Let's go let's, let's go down the list, actually. Uh, the first thing I'd do, make certain your PC is free of viruses and other malware. If you've got, a, if you've got malware or viruses on the machine, it real, re, will really slow it down because it's doing a lot of stuff in the background that it shouldn't be doing. So you want to do a virus scan, a malware scan, to make certain you're clean as a whistle. Next, you want to uninstall all the programs that you really don't need. And you know how you just sort of build up programs over time and, you know, you think they're good, but then they're really not good and you don't use them? So there's really a nice program out there. It's called the Geek Uninstaller. The Geek Uninstaller. You can go to geekuninstaller.com, and you remove any programs that you don't need or never intend to use. The nice thing about Geek Uninstaller, it does a better job of removing programs than the native Windows remove a program utility because sometimes that utility leaves some remnants of the program there if something has been changed to the configuration. So that Geek Uninstaller is a nice option. Now you want to remove any non-essential programs in the Windows startup. You know, every time your Windows boots up, you know, programs like to always be active and running, so they try to put their code in the startup 
so in the startup sequence so that you they're, they're started right up even though you don't do anything. And if you've got too many programs loaded in the startup, it'll slow down your machine. So actually you can you can actually do use a program called Auto Runs, Auto Runs. It's freeware from Microsoft Syst Internals. So you know that Auto Runs is safe and it's fully compatible with Windows. And what you do, you, you run Auto Runs and it shows you all of the things that load up automatically when you boot up your Windows machine. And then on that list, you simply uncheck the ones that you don't want. So the programs that you really don't need, there's no reason for them to be auto-loading, just uncheck them. And Auto Runs will remove them from the startup list automatically for you. And then that actually will take care of that. Then finally, you want to make certain that you've got the latest updates on your Windows machine. So that's everything you do on the software side. There are only a couple of things you do on the hardware side. Make certain you've got enough RAM. You need you definitely need eight gigabytes of RAM. So if you if you're sitting there with four gigs of RAM, you want to beef it up to eight gigs of RAM. And that will definitely speed up the machine. And probably the biggest impact on machine speed you can have is to go from a traditional hard drive to a solid state hard drive. Because the traditional hard drives have a magnetic platen that spins around, and there's a certain lag time to get data off the disk. Whereas a solid state hard drive is actually it's actually um, non-volatile memory that can be accessed, you know, very quickly, and it's much faster. And so if you would replace your old hard drive with a platinum hard a magnetic hard drive with a solid state hard drive, you'd see a big difference. Uh, that That's about um, the only op- options you have in terms of software and hardware, and I hope one of those works. Best of luck there, John. We got an email from Michael in Philadelphia. Dear Doc and Jim, I finally switched from Windows XP to Windows 10. I actually like it. However, I hate having all these notification messages pop up at random times in the lower right-hand corner of the screen. Is there a way to end that, Michael in Philadelphia? Well, those are annoying if you just have to let that thing pop up all the time. It's always ringing and popping. I, I actually... I actually set my, my, my computer windows up for um, nighttime mode, so just nothing pops up. But there's also another way you can do that. You can go to something called Focus Assist, and Focus Assist will, will, will you know, manages all of the notifications. So what you do, just go to Settings, click All Settings, and then there's a little search, search um, box there, and just write Focus Assist, search for it, and it'll... And then, and then click on the, the result there. When you open up the Focus Assist screen, you want to click Alarms Only. And, you know, there are basically three choices, all notifications or some notifications or Alarms Only. Now, if you haven't set up any alarms, and clicking Alarms Only will prevent all notifications from coming out. Now, note, you'll, you'll still get a pop-up if you get an alarm, but if you haven't set any alarms, nothing's going to come out. Now, you also could uh, select priority only, and that would allow high priority messages to come through rather than all messages. And so that may not be bad as long as there aren't too many of them. So you, you can sort of play with that focus assist to decide what level of notification you're comfortable with. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. This is, you know, I don't know. Jim's got a, a real a real uh, uh, fan here. Dear Doc and Jim and my buddy, Mr. Big Voice. <laughs> Ever since I noticed him, Jim doing his normal, regular job, he's so professional and perfect. 
His professional traffic reporter performances are incredible. He's fast, never makes a mistake. And then he comes to Tech Talk Radio. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> yes, but. <laughs> but. There's always a but. <laughs> then he comes to Tech Talk Radio. Although, in my case, I prefer the more relaxed Jim on Tech Talk. <laughs> Maybe it's because he has been has been influenced by Mr. Big Voice. Right? I get, he wears me out is what happens. So I, I'm low energy level when I'm here. Or maybe Jim just has some sort of evil twin or split personality. He might be right there. It's incredible the difference between Tech Talk Jim and Traffic Reporter Jim. Oh, my goodness. This is a little scary. I know. I love. I the think sh- I may need somebody to start my car when I leave. You, you know, I love the show and will never miss it, uh, even with the corny jokes. Your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, the corny jokes are supposed to be there. That's the whole idea. <laughs> that, Bob, thank you. That's very kind of you. And thank you for listening on both stations. We got an email from Peter in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I keep hearing about people having their Twitter accounts shadow banned. I, okay, I need to know. I haven't heard shadow banned. Shadow banned. I do not know exactly what that means, but I'm wondering if maybe my account has been shadow banned. Hmm. I used to receive dozens of followers every day, and now I only receive two or three uh, uh, over the next. I only receive two or three, and maybe a, a few weeks. Hardly anybody retreats anything that I send out, like they used to. But so something has changed. But I really don't know what's changed. Peter and Fairfax. Well, Peter, Twitter is sneaky in this area. Twitter is, has a set of published rules called terms of service. That users must follow that in order to keep their accounts in good standing on the platform. If you violate one of their terms of service, you'll typically receive a written warning. Or you might get a short-term suspension of the right to use the feature that that, that Twitter thinks you're abusing. And if you keep violating the terms of service, they might permanently ban you from Twitter. However, there are times when a user will tweet things that Twitter does not think is good for the Twitter community. Oh my God. But it actually doesn't break any rules. So they can't kick you off for violating the terms you know, of service. 99% of what's on Twitter is bad for Twitter. That's Twitter right. is a cesspool. <laughs> I mean, and I have to use it for work, but it is a hellhole. So what they do, if, you, if, you, if they tweet something that they don't think is appropriate for the community... They will then do something that they call well, – they don't call it shadow banning, but the community has. Shadow banning. And what, what happens is that you still have your account, but now your account does not show up in searches. And only people who see that uh, your account's tweets are people who are already following you. So people that don't follow you will never see anything showing up in searches. In addition, if any of your followers retweet one of your tweets – they won't be seen by anybody else. Wow. They just disappear. And and the only way people will see a retweet is if they see it directly from your timeline. But, of course, you're not in any search engines, so you, you basically disappear. Everything seems to be working just fine from the shadow banned user's perspective. They can publish their tweets. They can respond to tweets and do everything they used to. It's just that nobody sees what they're doing. It's pretty sneaky, and you know, and Twitter particularly does that to individuals whose political persuasion does uh-huh. not align with yeah. the yeah. Twitter culture. Yeah, exactly. Now, if you'd like to know if you're shadow banned, you can go to shadowban.eu. It's a website, 
shadowban.eu, you put in your Twitter handle, and they'll tell you whether you've been shadow banned. I'm checking mine right now. Okay, this is a, this. Uh, I am not banned. Oh, no, no, a no suggestion ban, no search ban, no ghost ban, no reply deboosting. But all I do is I tweet traffic. Okay, well apparently that is all right. How has Donald Trump not been shadow banned? I'm thinking. I'm thinking he's probably shadow banned. I don't know. He, but he. But uh, he already has so many he is followers. So, he, that, he is so. Uh, I don't know if they could shadow ban him because it's he's so prominent. He would go insane yeah. if they did yeah that, i think that is something that is really they're they're trying to flip the needle with their political persuasion i don't think that's really a good idea i think that's yeah it's it's dangerous it's very dangerous we got an email from charles in rockville dill Doc and jim i've returned from vacation and when i got home i saw that my house had been broken into and ransacked Man. they took almost everything including my computers and my ipad the police came and did some investigating but now i'm worried about the thief getting into my accounts. I borrowed a friend's laptop and tried to log into LastPass. That, of course, is the program that maintains all your passwords. I couldn't get into my account because the thief has already changed my password to LastPass. Mm. I called the bank, and he'd already changed my password on my online account. Ooh. Luckily, wow. no money's been withdrawn. Now I was able to use a friend's computer to change several passwords with that 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 I could still change but my question is do you know any way to get my master password back to LastPass well there is a way to reset your password um it's kind of you got to prove who you are and so there's a LastPass uh, page that's called recover your master password so you could just google I've got the link to it. it's a very complicated link but if you just say if you just put LastPass Recover your lost master password. Google will take you right to that page. So you can you can try to go through the process to change that. But I'm thinking this guy had your last pass uh, account for two weeks. Mm -hmm. He could have gotten all your passwords by now to everything. Yeah. I'd say you just ought to delete the darn thing. Yeah. So you can also go last pass, delete account. You go to there, and you can go through a process and, de and delete the account. And so this is one of the uh, <clears throat> disadvantages of these password managers. All your passwords are in one place. And if you lose your device, you lose all your passwords. So it is a problem with yeah. password managers. We got an email from Don in Baltimore. Dear Doc and Jim, I recently upgraded the speed of my Internet connection. However, I don't really see a difference. Is there something I can do? Is there something I've got to do to increase the speed or... How Just because I, you increased it doesn't mean it's faster, right? Yeah. Well, they they, they give you more throughput. They, the connect, they authorize. They go to the router. They authorize more throughput from your router to the to the to the node that you're connected to. They sort of they throttle your speed at at the router, and so they they authorize more speed for you. But uh, but maybe you can't get it. Okay, this is the thing, Don. Um, your router has to support the increased connection speed. So, you know, frequently Internet service providers will increase speed or you'll buy a higher speed package. And, and, but, but you may not see the speed increase because in many cases to get the speed increase, you have to upgrade the modem. And if you don't upgrade the modem, you won't get the increase in speed. And maybe your Internet service provider didn't tell you that. So it could be, Don, that you've got to upgrade your modem in order to capture that additional speed. So what you want to do is go to speedtest.net, speedtest.net, test the speed, 
Compare it with the speed that you're supposed to have. And I'd suggest do it in the middle of the night when you're not fighting other people on the network so 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 you get the true unbridled speed. And then if it isn't what it's supposed to be, call your Internet service provider and have it check it out. It could be a bad connection or... They might tell you you've got to upgrade your modem, but I would work on it because yeah. you should get the speed that you're paying for. You absolutely should. Listen, we love, love, love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. And you can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and follow Following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Ralph Anthony Brooker. Ralph Anthony Brooker is a computer scientist who is best known for designing and implementing the first high-level programming language called Mark I AutoCode. Now, Ralph Brooker was born September 22, 1925 in London, England. He was one of four children. He was educated at the Emanuel School, and he loved running and rowing. Rowing's a big thing in London there on the, yeah, on the Thames. In the Thames. <clears throat> in 1943, he won a scholarship to study mathematics at the Imperial College. That's part of the University of London. He graduated with first-class honors in 1946. The next year, 1947, he was appointed assistant lecturer in engineering mathematics at the same school, Imperial College. Now, <clears throat> his first computer project because uh, he was also doing research on the side, in, in addition to being a lecturer. His first computer project at Imperial was the construction of a multiplier unit using electromagnetic relays. See, in the old days, <clears throat> they were making computers with electromagnetic relays because they didn't have transistors. Mm-hmm. 
and they and and the relay each relay was like a transistor it would either be on or off on or off and so he was making a multiplier unit with electromagnetic relays and it was co- incorporated into the imperial college computer engine icce now there at the imperial college they just called that icky icce yes. that was the nickname icky now in 49, uh, he switched over to, to Cambridge University. They're all kind of close together there. And, uh, and, he, he, and he worked in the mathematical laboratory and took charge of its analog differential analyzer. This was an analog machine, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and it was actually had been invented many, many years ago. We, we covered that uh, in previous Tech Talks, and I think they, they had a version of it, and he, he was running it, kept it running kept using it. But this machine became obsolete as soon as digital computers came out. So in May of 1949, the laboratory's first practical electronic digital computer was unveiled, the EDSAC. The EDSAC. And it was, uh, so at that point, he says, you know, really, I, I think this whole analog differential analyzer is a dead end in my research direction. So he switched over and began working on the digital computer. And he was interested in computer programming. He worked with David Wheeler there, who was one of the professors. And together, they produced a scheme to simplify mathematical programming. Because the problem was, in these initial machines, you programmed them by feeding in zeros and ones. What you would do, you'd have the... You know, you'd have your processor chip, and you'd want to turn different uh, switches or transistors on or off with a zero. So you just put in a string of zeros and ones, and all the switches go one way. Then you put in another string of zeros and ones that go another way. And by doing that process of putting in sequentially zeros and, you know, long strings of zeros and ones, you could get the, the computer, you know, to do things to be and to program. But as you could imagine, that's not very human-friendly you got to write all these zeros and ones. It's just not not very. It's it's hard. It's really hard to program it if you're at that level, using the machine language, as you would say. So they started working on ways to simplify mathematical program to to have a uh, a step between when you write the program and then the zeros and ones that you're just feeding into the computer, and the zeros and ones you're feeding into the computer. That's just called machine. You know, machine language. But we wanted people language that we could program easier. Now, it turned out that Brooker was a keen rock climber. He loved to climb. And one weekend after climbing up in North Wales, he decided to pop into Manchester University. This They, they also had a computer, and they had a computer machine laboratory there at Manchester. That, by the way, is the university where Alan Turing was working. He was the really the father of computer science. And one of the preeminent leaders in the field there in um, Manchester. So he just popped in. He didn't know anybody there, really. He knew Alan Turing was there. He introduced himself, talked to the staff. And um, and after he talked to Alan Turing for a while, Alan said, you know, you're the kind of guy I'd like to have up here. So they hired him as a, um, you know, as a, um, a, as a lecturer in 1951. I mean, that was a great career move for him because he, he was working with one of the top people in the world, Alan Turing. And um, he accepted that position also because it was very close to the place that he loved to hike, Snowdonia. 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 <laughs> there in Wales. 
I've never heard of Snowdonia before. I've never before. heard of it either. No, Snowdonia before. I didn't think they got that much snow there. I guess so, in the higher elevation, Jess. But. So we went from the icky computer to a place near Snowdonia. <laughs> <laughs> now, mm. he took over from Alan Turing the task of writing the computer programming manuals and running the user service on the uh, computer there at Manchester, which was called the Ferrante Mark I computer. Not Ferrari, Ferrante. Right, right. Ferrante Mark I computer. Now, Alan, Alan Turing, I mean, he was, like, he was like a genius. So he didn't mind writing a bunch of zeros and ones and feeding it into the machine. But I'm telling you, it was tedious to program this Manchester machine coding conventions. And, um, and he had the device, a better way to do that. And so what he ended up creating was a, uh, a language. This was really the first high-level language that was released. And then he found, and then he created then a compiler that would take this language that looked like, uh, that was human-friendly, and then it would translate it to strings of zeros and ones. It would translate it into the machine language that the machine had to have because you, you, all it wanted was zeros and ones, where to, where, where to you know, turn the switches, turn the registers on or off. And so, and so he created a high-level language, and at the same time he created what they called the compiler, which is the program that translates the high-level language into the machine language. So he invented the compiler there because, you know, Alan Turing might have not minded programming in zeros and ones, but it was very hard to handle that. So he created the first high-level programming, which was called the Mark I autocode, the Mark I autocode. And, of course, that was written for the Ferrante Mark I computer. Now, he led a group of Manchester scientists working on the theoretical underpinnings of compilers <clears throat> because the problem was they actually were writing a lot of different high-level programs for this Mark I, you know, because they had different kind of problems. You know, like we had Fortran for, um, you know, for formula translation. You had COBOL for business problems. You've, you've got all kinds of programming languages which are designed and structured in human terms, to solve a problem that humans want to solve on computers, and they make the language amenable to the problem that humans want to solve on. So there were about six different languages that people were high-level languages that were working that they were working on for the um, for the Ferrante Mark One computer, and the computer team, the programming team, they didn't have the staff to create six compilers. Because, I mean, it's an enormous problem to take the high-level language and then convert it to machine language and write, a, write a, a, a new compiler for each one of those high-level languages. They just didn't have the horsepower to do that. So um, Ralph Brooker got the idea, and he worked with the team, to create a compiler-compiler. And what this is, you feed in a high-level programming language, you feed in the properties of the computer machine, and it will create the compiler automatically. So it's a compiler to create compilers. So it's a compiler-compiler. <laughs> <laughs> and so once they created the compiler-compiler, they could take these six high-level programming languages and immediately, automatically create a compiler for each of them. 
And so that actually solved a huge problem that they had. So they presented this idea. This seminal idea was first presented to the British Computer Society Conference in July of 1960 by Brooker and his, uh, his um, fellow scientist, Derek Morris. This was supplementally, supple, supple, subsequently implemented on the Ferrante Atlas and used for high-level programming development. By the way, this, you know, I said he created the first commonly used compiler. The, the Fortran compiler was not, writ, was not released for a full two years after his compiler was released. Now, the Ferrante Atlas was regarded as the world's most powerful computer when it was brought into service in December 1962. Now, after doing all of that work on uh, computer research, he, Tony then helped start, see, his name's Ralph Anthony Brooker, mm-hmm. but only his mom calls him Ralph. Of course. All of his friends call him Tony, mm-hmm. okay? So everybody knows he's known as Tony Brooker. Much cooler. Yeah, much cooler. But, you know, when he was late for dinner, she'd say, Ralph Anthony, where are you? But, but, but not, once he got out of the house, everybody called him Tony. Tony. Yeah. So Tony helped start the UK's first computer science degree program at Manchester, right there in Manchester where he was working with Alan Turing. Then he moved to Essex University in 1967, and he was the founding chair of the computer science department at Essex University. And it turned out that he was a great academic administrator. He built that program. He attracted faculty through his connections in the computer science world. He attracted students. And he was an excellent educational administrator. He retired from that job in 1988 and died in Hexham, England, uh, November 20th, uh, 2019, so just, just, just last year. Yeah. yeah. Actually, after he died, there was, a, there was a very large New York Times piece on it. And Susan, one of our longtime listeners, suggested Ralph Anthony Brooker as a profile in IT person. You know, when, when I was looking over this earlier and I saw the name Mark Monotoka, and I'm thinking, you know, that sounds like a race car, uh-huh. right? Yeah. But this seems to be a a um, a um, uh, back then it seemed like to be a common way of describing the first version of something, Model One, oh, Mark yeah. One. Oh, okay, I was yeah. looking that up on the uh, on the interwebs over here, and of course Wikipedia that always has it right. Oh yeah. Of course. I was thinking, I was wondering if they were going for some sort of, you know. Um, uh, fancy name for it, but I think it was just what they did back then. So uh, the first version was. Now we go 1.0. Have you ever noticed? There's. Have you ever noticed? There's never a Mark II. There's well, only a Mark. Yes. Have you ever heard of a Mark II? Uh, there was a well. The Lincoln. <laughs> the Lincoln. I was thinking about this because Lincoln had the Lincoln Continental. I think they had got up the Mark VI or something like that. So, oh. So I don't know how many. I've got, I'll have to look that we'll up. To, I've never How heard of a Lincoln Mark II Marks? in in, in the yes. computer world. I've never heard of a Mark II. Hang on a second here. Okay. Let's see what it says. Lincoln Mark. Got the Lincoln Mark Seven. Wow. There was a Lincoln Continental Mark II. Three, four, five. Yes. Look okay. at that. How All crazy right. is that? They were ugly as sin, though. <laughs> These are like '70s vintage cars, giant boats. Anyway. You're finished, right? I am totally. finished. I don't finished. want to cut you off. No, no, you didn't cut me off. Good. No, All right. you just hijacked me. <laughs> But I don't that mind ha- it. It was a very excellent hijack. Well, see, but, but see, what happened here is you got the critical thinking part yes. of me going, and yeah. I and, and and so your piece here inspired me to look for something else. Exactly. There you go. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. Heard on the Federal News Network, part of well, part of the Federal News Network. Quite honestly.
at 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Watch us do the program. Download the Periscope app to your device. Follow us at Tech Talk Radio. WFED Tech Talk. I'm sorry. Get that right. See you in a minute. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Please, please sit down, please sit down. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're excited had, about this whole... We had whole... to wrangle the crowd there for a minute, so we're away from the mic. By the way, I found out that there was a Harvard Mark II computer. Was there? It also used relay, it used mechanical relays, and it was developed by Howard Aiken and Grace Hopper, who was one of the first people in the U.S. to work on a high-level programming language for COBOL, but that was slightly after the work at Manchester. So look at that. We fell down a rabbit hole today. We figured yes. out there are Mark IIs. There is a Mark II even in the computer. Yes, yes. I just hadn't known about that. Okay. Yes, this is not simply a radio no. show. This is a classroom of the airways. Yes. And we evaluate whether the class has been listening by giving you a pop quiz. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get tickets to fine dining at one of our dining rooms, and you will also get an A-plus for today's show. Earlier today, I talked about Ralph Anthony Brooker. Now, his friends know him as Tony Brooker. Now, he began working at the Imperial uh, College there at the University of London, and he worked on a particular computer that used electromechanical delays. What was the nickname of that computer? If you know the answer to today's question, well, now's the time to pick up the phone and give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia. It's 877-936-9333. 
if you're getting icky with it in. <laughs> Call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Church. I'm glad I amused you. Yes, right. Let's talk about the teen hack of the week. Okay. Oh, this is terrible. This, this is, is awful. This is using AirPods for secret this, communication oh, in class. Minute. Okay, I got another one after that. Okay. After you, okay. This, this, this is, this is, this is clever though. Go ahead. You, you've got an. Okay. So what uh-huh. it is? There's a YouTube video that shows a fun way that kids are apparently communicating in class. It appears that they're swapping a single iPod of theirs, you know, and they they take it. They each are wearing one of their iPods and the iPod of their friend. Oh my God. So they have, and so what happens is that then they type into their computer a message and they use the speech to text app and the message goes into the iPod and their friend hears it through their iPod. So the iPods are talking to each other. You get that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they it's sit like they've there. Got this, it's like a new, newfangled two-way radio. Yes. And so they're sitting there and they, they just type a message in their iPhone and then it plays with speech to text, goes to their iPod. Their friend has one of their iPods. They've got one. So they both hear that message. And then the other guy, they answer back, back and forth. So they can talk to each other without even moving their lips. Now, now you know, it was Apple that first thought of the principle of iPod sharing. The company in the 2017 Christmas ad showed two strangers splitting a pair of iPods so they could dance in the street together. So Apple was the one that gave everybody the idea. So this is actually, um, it's kind of cute. Yeah. So I think that once adults discover this, they're going to start using it during long, boring business meetings. I think you're absolutely and right. I, and I'm thinking the Senate could have used this during the impeachment hearings. I'll bet they were. They could have, they, you know, they, they, they could be sitting back there telling jokes to each other during that. Oh, they, but they weren't allowed to have iPhones in the, in the, in the chamber. Mm-hmm. They had to sit there with no electronics. That's, that's why they couldn't, that's why they kept well, falling uh, yeah, asleep. Might as well punish them. <laughs> Uh, so this other thing, which is really quite dangerous, and actually the Maryland State Fire Marshal says it's illegal. Have you you have not heard about the uh, TikTok outlet challenge? Have you? No, I have okay. not. So what these kids do is they take the iPhone charger and they pu- plug it partially into the wall. So the two prongs that are going into the electrical socket are making contact inside the socket, but part of the prongs are exposed. Then they take a penny, slide it down the wall. So the penny drops and comes into contact with the two contacts on the iPhone uh-huh. charger and sparks. But it can start a fire. It shorts out the electrical system in that socket. And it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, you could electrocute yourself doing this and set the place on fire. So the Maryland State Fire Marshal um, uh, put out a press release last week <laughs> m- warning people that this is actually – uh, you know, something that's that's illegal and that uh, that uh, if you start a fire, you could get charged with arson for doing you, you this. You could do that. You know, you know, that reminds you something happened to me. I've got behind the, the bed stand. I've got a I got the, the charger is plugged in. Mm-hmm. And one day, unknown to me, a penny slipped off the back of it and fell right down between the two prongs. Oh, my. So the same thing happened. Yeah, but it, just it, happenstance. It, it shorted out the circuit and I couldn't get it to work. 
And I had to and call. Wonder- I called an electrician. He came out to check the breaker, check everything, and he said, uh, "Sir, you got a penny here shorting out your two oh, prongs." So the penny is still sitting on the prong. It didn't bounce off. It just no. It was just sitting there, but it was oh, it was wow. it was behind. I couldn't you see couldn't it. See it. I couldn't see it. Well, you're lucky it didn't start a fire. But I had to pay a hundred dollars to have some guy come out and tell me there was a penny shorting out my. Well, shorting out you're my probably charger. lucky that a professional, because I mean, Lord knows if you had touched that, you gotta you gotta electrocute you, yourself. You never know. Yeah. All good, right. Good thing I had a breaker there. That is a good thing. Guess what? Somebody's here to play our game. Oh, Let's go good. to line one. Lewis in Rockville. Good morning, Lewis. How are you, sir? Whoops. Good, thank you. Oh, good. Oh, that, good morning, Lewis. There we go. Doctor Shirts, go ahead and ask the Early in the show, I talked about Ralph Anthony Brooker. He, of course, developed the first high-level programming language, the Auto Mark I Autocode. What was the name, the nickname of the first computer that he worked on at Imperial College? Icky. That Very is good. correct. And delivered with such authority and energy. <laughs> Hang on, Lewis. We're going to send you back to Andrew. He's going to take your information, and we'll send the prize right out to you. It is Saturday morning. You are listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. You can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Avast, that free antivirus software that I love actually and recommend. We found out this week that they are secretly sharing data of where you're going on the internet, sharing browser data. Avast is harvesting users' browser history on the pretext that the data has been de-identified, thus protecting your privacy. But the data is being sold to third parties and can be linked back to people's real identities, exposing every click and search they've ever made. Now, last month, the antivirus company tried to justify the practice by claiming that the collected histories are stripped of any user's personal details. Now, what they do is they, uh, 
this is how they do it. They they sell they sell that what they they take the data and there's a there's a particular user ID that is assigned to you by Avast. Your name's not with it, but all of the behavior in terms of browsing the web is tied back to that one particular user ID. And so they have all of your history tied to a user ID, which is just some random number. So they can't, just with that data alone, they can't tell who you are. Then their division, JumpShot, it's a subsidiary. They then sell that data, which they say has been made anonymous. They sell the data to companies, and they've got user traffic from, from 100 million devices, including both PCs and phones. Now, here's the problem, and, and this is what the, um, what the folks who have looked at this have done. These huge companies take and link that data up with data that they have. And using additional data that correlates with the data from Avast, they can identify who the person is. So, for instance, if they sell that data to Amazon, and then they go through that, and they notice that you went to the Amazon website and clicked on purchase something, well, Amazon knows who'd purchased it at a particular time on a particular date. So, bingo, Amazon knows exactly who you are because they've correlated with their database. Mm Mm-hmm. So Google has a database. These huge companies all have databases, and when you correlate the Avast data with their databases, you can actually identify who it is. So, uh, so people are saying this isn't good, and Avast needs to do something to make it clear what exactly what they're doing and disclose it so that users know what they're getting into if they use this free software. And I think the disclosures weren't proper. I mean, you can't blame Avest. They want to make some money off something giving away free, but they have to give a proper disclosure so people know what's going on. Britain approves Huawei's 5G hardware Mm -hmm. over the strongest U.S. objections. The U.S. believes that Huawei, there that there are backdoors built into it, and it's uh, you know, and that the uh, military, the intelligence folks in China are going to use those backdoors to spy on com- countries that uh, that install Huawei soft, uh, you know, five G network um, t- telecom uh, hardware, because then you can actually you you can observe all the traffic, you can see what's going on, you can. You can actually intercept things, uh, and you can put a man in the middle of attacks easily. There are all kinds of things that you can do if you have access to the actual uh, telecom network. And the U.S. simply doesn't trust China in any companies that have hardware made entirely in China. Now, the problem is there are very few alternatives to buy the to, to buy 5G hardware. And, and the companies that have it available now – and have it available at scale so you can build a countrywide network are all non-U.S. country companies. So for some reason, the U.S. just, you know, lost out in this uh, 5G competition. And Huawei is, is way ahead. So Britain had the um, sort of the really unpleasant choice. If they would not take Huawei software, they would have a big delay hardware, Huawei hardware, they would have a big delay in deployment of their 5G network. And in addition, it would cost a lot more. So it would be slower to install at a much higher price. And what Britain decided to do was put the Huawei software out in the periphery, not at the core, 
and areas that were less, um, you know, you know, less critical to the to the network. And they said, well, this will keep them from spying on us. But the um, U.S. says, look, they virtualized all of the the core within the network, so the periphery, so the edge devices and the core devices are all sharing the same, uh, are all sharing the same virtual system. So there's no difference. So the U.S. says that really doesn't make a difference. So the U.S. is doesn't know what to do about this. Uh, I think the Brits felt they didn't have a choice, and so you know the U.S. is part of the what they call the Five Eyes. The GCHQ, the British equivalent of the, um, the the GCHQ, which is the British equivalent of the U.S. National Security Agency, operates a hub for Five Eye members. This is the the Five Eyes are Australia, Britain, Canada, New Zealand, the U.S. These Five Eyes all share very classified intelligence data. And if we would penalize Britain by not sharing intelligence data with us. The feeling is that the U.S. would be hurt more than Britain because yeah. we rely on them for lots of intelligence, other than the the, the Steele report. Yeah, did you are you <laughs> keeping up with the uh, the news about the the um, uh, the founder of uh, Huawei's uh, daughter Meng Wanzhou, who's been held in Canada for like a year now? Uh, it's in some complicated case involving uh, giving money to the Iranians and uh, through Huawei, and uh, apparently it's 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 quite a mess. It's a, it, it, is she still being held? She's still being held. She went on trial. I guess it was last week. They're they're working on the extradition thing. Apparently, the the United States wants wants to get their hands on her. Yeah. And so now they're involved in this extradition case in Canada. She's yeah. in Vancouver. Is where so I'd, I'd heard that they were. So I, so the extradition has not gone through. I'd heard the U.S. was working on that. Not so yet. the so the charge was that Huawei was selling uh, hardware to Iran during a time that there was an absolute ban right. on sales to Iran. But so, the money looked like it was going somewhere else. Yeah, it was it was the money was laundered. Yes, and then they were sending the hardware there on a secret ship. And what they were doing, what they were doing, they they were they were sending hardware out through a very indirect route. So it looked like it wasn't coming from them. They would sell it to a customer. The customer would sell it to one of their customers, and then eventually would get it in Iran through some uh, you know some backdoor operations. But mm-hmm. the U.S. tracked that, and and then when she visited to Canada. They ask uh, Canada to arrest her, and and I didn't realize she, she was still in She's been in held there. for a year. Yeah. I think she's on home detention because when you look at the stories and you go and you, and you Google, every story has a picture of her dressed to the nines but walking around with the home monitoring ankle on her on her ankle. Okay. She's probably in a luxury hotel with, with, with a mont. Well, she actually – I think she has a citizenship or something in Canada. She has a place to live there. I think she's actually living at whatever property she owns in, in Vancouver. Okay. But this is funny. Ren Zeng Fai – so I was reading about him when I saw this pop up. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's an interesting guy. He says that none of his family members will ever rise to run that company because none of them have what it takes to do it. <laughs> isn't that isn't that something to say about your family? Yeah, that, that it is. Something else. You never know what the connection. You never know what his connections are there in China because the, the the Chinese government did subsidize them when they were just getting started. Yep. Let's take a break. Okay. It's Saturday morning, and this is Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. 
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I was looking at the Mark I computer there at Harvard. Mm -hmm. It was a a giant room full of clicking metal parts. And the computer (laughs) was 55 feet long and 8 feet high. It weighed five tons, and it contained almost 760,000 separate pieces. It was used by the U.S. Navy for gunnery and ballistic calculations. It was an operation up to 1959. It was an electromechanical device that was enormous. I've got a picture of the thing, and it was built there at, um, at Harvard. And they were, just, they were just a little bit behind the Mark I that was developed at Manchester. These things are huge. How we've come. And now we carry this stuff in our pocket. Yeah, progress right? we've made. Yeah, the cell phone's more powerful than that Mark I. Mm. Does your domain have registry lock? There's the problem <clears throat> that some it is possible for companies to steal your registry. Like there was there was an example of uh, of a of a company in um, in, that had their had their registry. Ehawk was the name of the company, and they were hosted by Open Provider, and uh, and so a uh, and so somebody, an unknown attacker, began contacting customer support at Open Provider, in the, in the Netherlands, and the scammer told the customer representative representative that they just purchased from the original owner of the domain of ehawk.net. Okay, in this case, the uh, the scam the scammers managed to trick the open provider customer service into transferring the domain name to another registrar, you know, and that's just fairly simple social engineering, and they did it without triggering any verification of the real owners of the domain. Then all of a sudden, eHawk lost their domain, and it was uh, you know it was a huge problem. It turned out that the CEO of eHawk knew. The registry you knew the you knew the registry people. He knew the uh, internet service provider that it was transferred to. So he knew all the people, and he was able to get it back. But many times you can't get you can't get it back, and there have been registries so you know transferred fraudulently. So 
you want to implement a registry lock. You go to a registry lock, it means that your registry, your domain cannot be moved to another location. It can't be redirected unless somebody contacts you via phone or direct contact with you so that it can't be done all with scammers. Mm -hmm. And so after looking at these things, I highly recommend that you make certain that your domain name has a registry lock. Very important. Now, you know, there's this whole fight over um, privacy. Mm -hmm. And Apple has been criticizing people like Facebook for selling user data. They say Facebook doesn't produce anything. It just violates people's privacy and makes money on it. And they're highly critical of Facebook. They're highly critical of the way Google tracks people and uses their data. So many, many of these companies, you know, ply on selling user data so you will get directed ads. And Apple says we don't make money on customer data. We make money on selling them really good hardware. So Apple has been systematically trying to lock down their their um, their iPhones, their their devices, so it's harder for companies to harvest the data from the iPhone. So when the i iOS 13 came out, there are a number of privacy features that have negatively affected advertisers, and um, and it's really helping uh, you know helping individuals protect their rights. For instance, once you installed, there'll be a pop-up informing the user of apps that use data while they're not in use. So a lot of these apps will just set up, you install them, and they'll use data from you even when you're not using that. And so now with iOS 13, it pops up. And if an app is using data when you're not using the app, the iPhone will notify you and say, is this what you want? And then users say no. And so now instead of having 100% opt-in for using data when, when, uh, the, uh, when the app is off, it's down to 50%. So half the people are saying no. I don't want them to know that. Now, it, it also um, gave them a choice on what kind of data to share. The iOS, you know, it, it introduced a couple of changes that promote users, users' awareness of the issue. And so this is really a good thing. So when these pop-ups come up with the new iOS 13, look at them and use them to protect your privacy. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out our health care, our IT, our business, or our culinary and hospitality programs and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.